Thank you, Seth. Well done. Well done. Good morning. Glad you're here. I hope you have some water and not, are not jealous right now. I need that. So glad you're here today. Open your Bibles with me, if you will, to Psalm chapter 115. And uh, if you don't have a Bible, there may be one in the, in the back of the pew in front of you. Psalm 115. We'll look at a couple of passages today, and I'll read a whole bunch of them that you can look up later. <clears throat> today is the first of a four-part series on that I've called Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering. And it is something that grew out of a study I did when I was on sabbatical last year. I purposed to study suffering. Um, and suffering has found me in my life and those that I love, and I felt like I needed to understand it better. And so I did a lot of reading in the Bible, Job, Ecclesiastes, Isaiah, Psalms, the Gospels, looking at suffering, a number of books, maybe a half dozen or so, by men like Tim Keller, Don Carson, David Paulson, Eric Cortland, John Dunlop, others that have written on suffering from a biblical perspective. Initially, I came away, or actually, initially I started this study with the hope of being able to bring comfort to those who suffer. And I hope if you are suffering today, that you can find comfort in this. I think the latter messages in this series will be more comforting, but I think today will be as well. I also have a desire to equip us to help people walk through suffering, because we all do. But the more I read scripture and studied, uh, the greatest burden became that God would be glorified and revealed to us through our suffering. That God would be glorified in our suffering. And that's a hard thing, that's a challenging thing. Uh, the four part series is briefly today, the title is Understanding Suffering in the 21st Century. We're gonna look at that a little bit and try to understand how Modern man sees suffering. Next week, it's the sovereign and suffering God. It'll be about the nature of God. Week three will be suffering is God's gymnasium, how God uses suffering to mature us. And lastly, walking with God through pain and suffering. Um, and uh, I think hopefully more specifically how to be comforted and how to comfort others when they suffer. Uh, I love you all who take notes. I think that's great. I do as well. We're going to go through a lot. You may not be able to catch it all. And if not, it'll be on the website with this message this week, which you can follow. So Psalm 115, uh, verses 2 and 3. This is God's Word. Why should the nation say... Where is their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does all he pleases. Heaven and earth will pass away, but God's, God's word abides forever. Let's pray. Lord, we, we are all too familiar with this tug this questioning of the world, at times even of our own souls, about your purposes and your nature, yet you are in the heavens and you do as you please. And you are a good 
and loving and merciful God. So we pray today that by your spirit you would illumine our minds, bring alive the truth in scripture, help us to grasp these truths by faith so we can see you in our suffering, glorify you in our suffering, have answers and care for others. In Jesus' name, amen. In East Taihang Mountains in Handan City, China, there is an 870-foot-long glass skywalk that is perched 3,870 feet up on a sheer cliff wall. That's over a half a mile high in the air. Personally, I don't really part of that. <laughs> you may enjoy those kind of things. I do not. I do not. But for brave souls who trust in glass skywalks, seemingly, it sounds like a good time. You can, you can see videos of many people walking along that skywalk, seemingly on a stroll on Sunday afternoon in the parks or something. That would not be me. However, somebody thought it'd be really funny to put in special effects somewhere along that walk that when you stepped on the pane, it would look as if it's cracking, complete with sounds of glass cracking. Can you imagine that? Here you are, you finally got the nerve to go out there. You're walking along, you're thinking, okay, I may survive after all. And you step on this glass, it's crack, and these cracks go all through this glass. That'd be real. <laughs> so, um, if you enjoy seeing someone freak out, you can go online, YouTube, look this thing up, and you'll see this tour guide who didn't do his research well enough, stepping on this, falling and cracking and crying out in fear, thinking he's going to plunge to his death half a mile below. Pretty crazy. When we wrestle with the realities of suffering, especially when we're in the midst of a deep, prolonged trial, our skywalk of faith can seem to crack. We've seen God do wonderful things in our lives, answered prayers, help us grow, but suddenly it seems like the heavens are made of brass, God is nowhere to be found can feel like we're being dangled over a precipice. Seemingly, God's promises don't work. We can feel like telling God, hey, I didn't sign up for this. No, I sure, I gave you my life. You promised to bless me. That was the agreement we made early on. What's the deal, Lord? It is tempting to charge God. Certainly, there are many in our culture who do charge God and reject Christianity because of suffering. And C.S. Lewis, in his inimical way, describes this very well. I think we have a slide for you on this. He said it this way, the ancient man approached God, or even the gods, as the accused person approaches his judge. For the modern man, the roles are reversed. He is the judge, 
God is in the dock. And I think in England, the place where the accused stand is called the dock and where the judge sits is the bench. Man is quite a kindly judge. If God should have a reasonable defense for being the God who permits war, poverty, and disease, he's ready to listen to it. The trial may even end in God's acquittal. But the important thing is that man is on the bench. God is in the dock. 21st century man increasingly calls God to the dock, puts God on trial, and finds him lacking. Here's the question. How can a loving, omniscient, omnipotent God allow suffering and evil? Good question. But do you see the shift? Man is the prosecuting attorney and the judge. From that perspective, God is, on the, God is in the dock. An unbelieving world is accusing God of not being loving or omnipotent or both. Through this accusation and many others, the nations rage against God. Often the Bible uses the roaring of mighty waters of the sea as a metaphor for the rebellious nations. They may roar, but our good God reigns even over their roaring. Isaiah 17, 12 through 13. Listen to this. Isaiah says, God speaking through Isaiah, Ah, the thunder of many peoples, they thunder like the thundering of the seas. Ah, the roar of the nations, they roar like the roaring of mighty waters. The nations roar like the roaring of many waters. But he will rebuke them, and they will flee far away. Chase like chaff on the mountains before the wind, and whirling dust before the storm. Psalm 93, verses 3 and 4, we sang this this morning. The floods have lifted up, O Lord, the, the flood, they looked up their voice. The floods lifting up their roaring, mightier than the thunder of many waters, mightier than the waves of the sea. The Lord on high is mighty. God is in no way moved by the raging of the nations. He is mightier than the waves. He rules and reigns in complete sovereignty and in mercy and in salvation. He is kind and merciful and good and very close to us in our suffering. Why should the nations say, where is their God? Our God is in the heavens and he does as he pleases. It pleases God to show his love and save, but his goodness is often hidden from unbelieving eyes. We who believe are often pressed to try to defend him. We try to come up with a decent defense to get God out of the jam he's in. I mean, Lord, come on. Shake a leg here. It's not looking good. People are saying, what's going on? God, we need to feel like we need to help him out sometimes. Really, for centuries, Christians have been coming up with defenses for God. The technical term for this is theodicy. Theodicy. Theo from the Greek word God and dice or dike in the Greek is trial or judgment. Theodicy literally means justifying God. So we're going to look at some of these defenses of God that have been tried over the centuries and see how much they help us. 
perhaps the oldest theodicy is called soul making. The idea of soul making was taught by Arrhenius in the second century, two years, two, two, 200 years after the Lord was on the earth. Uh, this has been more recently promoted by Arthur J John Hick. Soul making teaches that evil is justified because people must learn through adversity and so grow spiritually. Hick argues that soul making is an infinite good that wouldn't occur in a world without evil. And we can see some truth in that. Um, we do see people at times mature in adversity. We know God's strength is made perfect in our weakness. So there is something to be said for that idea. But the soul-making theodicy, this defense has some problems. First, it is insufficient to explain all suffering and evil. All too often, we see that evil is experimented, experienced disproportionately. Seems like those with bad souls who need most to be matured, sometimes they suffer less than the people that seem more righteous, and those people seem to get more than their fair share of suffering. So much suffering seems senseless. The preacher said in Ecclesiastes 7.15, In my vain life I have seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in evil doing. So while we can see God working at times, perfecting us through suffering, there's this whole other element that seems to be unexplained by that. So making doesn't account for the suffering of children or infants, doesn't account for random violence. Soul making. Another, perhaps the most common theodicy, is called the free will theodicy. St. Augustine was a proponent of free will. Defense early in his ministry, but later became a critic of it. The free will theodicy holds that God didn't create us as robots or animals who act by instinct. Instead, we are intelligent, rational, free moral agents. This view holds that God created us with reasoning minds and a free will so we could choose to love him. The idea is God wouldn't want to be loved by people who had to love him, that he wanted them to have the choice. The conclusion is that to that, God had to give them the option of not choosing him and falling into sin. So that, that sounds, sounds reasonable at first glance. Still doesn't explain all suffering. Generally, there's suffering separated into moral evil and physical evil, so the moral evil, sinning, aggression, violence, but the moral evil are like natural disasters, like floods and hurricanes and tornadoes and disasters that strike. Free will, theodicy doesn't explain why those things happen. Also, the free will theodicy presents a different idea of man's ability to choose and a different idea of freedom than we find in the Bible. Romans 3, 10, 11 say this, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one, no one understands, no one seeks God. Ephesians 2 tells us that when we were dead in our trespasses and sin, we were made, when we were dead, we were made alive to go to Christ. God does the choosing. God chooses us. The Bible teaches the ability to choose against God is not actually 
freedom. Choosing against God and sinning is slavery. Only when we are free from sin can we, freely, can we truly be free to, to choose. So this is hard. This is where we hear the sound of, grass, of glass cracking. The other problem with the free will theodicy is this. Is it really true that God couldn't have created free agents capable of loving him, but also incapable of evil? Did God have to do it that way? As we said, the libertarian view of free will holds that God can't lead us to do the right thing without violating our free will, and so evil is inevitable, but God's own nature disproves that, and it is on the nature of God that all of our hope rests. God is incapable of evil. Let's look at it. Let's look at some of God's characteristics. First of all, God is sovereign and free. We read it already, our, our text, Psalm 115.3, our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Also, God cannot lie or break a promise. Numbers 23.19, God is not man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said it, will he not do it? Has he spoken, will it not fulfill it? God does not lie. God does not break his promises. Also, God cannot be tempted by evil. James 1.13 tells us that. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Also, God cannot deny or contradict his perfectly righteous and holy nature. 2 Timothy 2.11-13 says this. The saying is trustworthy and worthy of full acceptance. If we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. God does not change. Peter 1.16, God speaks to us here and elsewhere and says, you be holy, for I am holy. The ground of our call and hope for holiness is because God is holy and he changes not. We never have to worry about God's character. God never changes. So if God is that way, he could have made others that way. In fact, the Bible promises that we will one day have every tear wiped away, have all evil and suffering removed, and live in sinless joy, free of all sin, for all eternity. That's what we're called to. That's the promise of the gospel. That's the coming kingdom. That's what heaven will be with God in Christ. 1 John 3, 2. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we will see him as he is. We'll be changed. Another idea out there, some liberal theologians try to rescue God from his dilemma by proposing 
process or limited knowledge theology. Process theology or limited knowledge theology. Process theology is a theology which proposes that God moves along the same timeline we do. Does not know the future. Cannot force people to behave in a way which will compromise their free will. <laughs> so, it's kind of like God's this free safety on the football field. He's out there. Eyes on the quarterback, which is the devil, calling the shots. And then God's just ready. He'll go knock down the pass. He'll make the tackle. He'll, do it. He'll react in that moment and, and figure things out. <laughs> yeah, you know, so, right. God doesn't know what's going to happen. I mean, that is a dreadful thought. So, so, so what are you saying? So how is that going to comfort a sufferer? You know, your guess is good as God's. You know, whatever. I don't know. Just depends. We don't know. God hasn't figured it out yet. Ah, oh, that's terrifying. That's no comfort to think somehow God is not in control. It's also not biblical. Isaiah 46, 8 through 10, I'll read to you. God speaking through Isaiah, remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish my purpose. God looks to us in our suffering. He says, remember this. Stand firm. Recall it to mind. I am God. There is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things yet to come. My counsel shall stand. I will accomplish my purpose. 1 John 3, 19 and 20. This verse has been such a comfort to me so many times. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For if our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. God knows everything. He's greater than your heart. Reassure your hearts in that. These theodicies have helpful aspects that do give us some insight into the effects of suffering, but they can't quite get God off the hook. They don't fully explain how a good, loving, omnipotent God allows suffering. God is not worried. God's got that. And actually, it's not our job to try to get God off the hook. Not our job to try to defend God. He is able to defend himself. Actually, it's on the doubter, it's on the unbeliever to somehow prove that there is not a reason, although it is hard for us to see. One philosopher said it this way. He talked about the, um, the pup, pup tent. So if you go into a pup tent, if you're looking for a St. Bernard, and it's a St. Bernard, you're going to see it in your pup tent, right? You're going to see it. 
but he talked about the noceums. You know what noceum is? Noceum is a almost invisible insect that has a bite very disproportionate with its size. If you've ever been bitten by a noceum, it is no fun. They're almost invisible, so you can look in that tent and not see the noceums, but when you try to go to sleep, you're going to find them. So, so modern man in his perspective can't conceive that there is a reason for a good and omnipotent God to allow for suffering. And there is. And God knows it. And we don't fully. The philosopher Charles Taylor describes modern man as having a buffered identity. So buffered as opposed to porous. So if I'm porous, I'm able to receive, but if I'm buffered, I'm protected. So buffered, the buffered identity operates within a disenchanted world where supernatural beings or forces are deemed close to impossible. Just doesn't happen. Taylor says that today we live in an eminent frame. The view of the world is completely natural order without any supernatural. It is a completely eminent world over against a possible transcendent one where God lives. Tim Keller describes it this way in his book. He says, human beings operate within the eminent frame, have far more confidence in their reasoning powers and their ability to unlock the mysteries of the universe than did ancient people. The belief that because we cannot think of something, God cannot think of it either, it's more than a fallacy. It is a mark of great pride and faith in one's own mind. Excuse me. In the face of the unexplainable, in the face of sorrow and suffering, we don't find help or grace in accusing God. Rather, grace and glory are found in worshiping the one true God. Psalm 95 says this, O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker, for He is our God, and we are the people of His pasture, the sheep of His hand, the people He came and died for. God is copiously generous to give us all the information we need to believe and trust, but ultimately... He is beyond our comprehension. The God who created the universe and reveals Himself through Scripture is good, loving, righteous, and holy, even though there is suffering in the world. So what can we cling to in suffering? What can we cling to? Five doctrines I want to give you, five biblical doctrines that we can cling to when we suffer. The first, we serve a personal, wise, infinite, and inscrutable God. Inscrutable means you can't see Him. You can't fully understand Him. Romans 11.33, oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable His ways. Ecclesiastes 3, 10 and 11 say this, I have seen the business that God has given the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. 
And he has put eternity in the man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. This is the state of mankind in the world. We can look at nature and we can see God's beauty revealed. We can look in relationships. We can see the love of a mother for her child. We can see the family. We can see beauty. We can see loyalty. We can see bravery. We see these beautiful things. He's placed this eternity in our hearts. We know there's something more. We know there is a God. We have that within us yet in a way that we can't see the end from the beginning. We trust in his omnipotence, omniscience, and sovereignty. This is where trust and faith are revealed. Second comforting doctrine from the Bible for sufferers. God himself in the person of Jesus Christ came to earth and to sacrificially suffer with and for us. God did not remain distant. That leave his creation to suffer alone. God came himself in the person of Jesus Christ, lived among suffering, suffered himself, died on the cross, paid for our sins, rose again, reigns on high, sends his spirit, calls us to his kingdom. If you don't know Jesus today, that's the gospel calls you to repent from your sins, live for him. That's great comfort. That's great comfort. Hebrews 5, 7 and 9 through 9 say this. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered a prayer supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Jesus suffered to become the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Three, third doctrine. Because Christ suffered on the cross for us, we have great assurance of his love and care. Excuse me. <laughs> Romans eight thirty one and 32. What can we say to these things if God is for us who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us, how will that also with him graciously give us all things? Jesus rose from the dead. There are times when we're suffering, times when Things aren't going as we think they ought to. Sometimes it doesn't make sense, and we can wonder, Lord, why? Why is this happening? Well, we may not always know. We may never know. The one thing we do know is not because he doesn't love us. 
He proved that when we were still sinners, Christ died for us. There's great assurance in that, great comfort. Wherever you are in your suffering, wherever your loved one is in his or her suffering, that's still true. The fourth doctrine, and this is um, one the church has clung to through the ages, one to cling to now. There is a coming bodily resurrection from the dead for all who believe. God will be fully seen. He will wipe away every tear. We will become like him someday. We will cast off this body, receive a new body, which will be sinless with God forever. Hallelujah. 1 Corinthians 15, 50 through 53. Paul speaking, so I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery in a moment. In the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. We've read this already, bears reading again, 1 John 3, 2, beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we will see him as he is. Wherever you are in your suffering today, wherever you, however you understand suffering around you, if you're in Christ, should they come in the hope of our salvation that will be transformed, be like him. Number five, doctrine from scripture for the church for suffering. God ordains suffering in order to reveal his mercy to us and his glory in us. God ordains suffering in order to reveal his mercy to us and his glory in us. Open your Bibles, if you will, to Romans chapter 8, verses 18. I know I've been reading for you, but I think it, I think it would serve you to see it, to look at this with me while I'm reading it. So grab your phone, or maybe in front of you on the pew, there's a Bible. Look at it with me, if you will. Romans 8, 18. God's purposes through suffering. How we see and understand the world, how we see and understand suffering are informed by these five doctrines. This one as well. Romans 8, verse 18. Paul, the apostle speaking here, this whole chapter is just rich in explaining this. We'll pick it up in verse 18. He says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, 
but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruit of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. All of creation is but one story. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. God created the world in perfection. Adam and Eve sinned. They fell from grace. They were cast out of God's presence. God began a plan of restoration through the centuries, through the people of Israel, through the prophets, through the judges, to Christ. And it's in, in God and His inscrutable good and wise ways, subjected creation to futility and sent Jesus to the cross in order to bring forth the kingdom of God and reveal the sons and daughters of God. In Christ, all our sufferings are redeemed by his suffering. So now, in this age, we have the joy of knowing fellowship with Jesus through our suffering. You may still have questions. Three more, three more teachings. We'll keep going after it. But leave you with one true, hopeful, and sobering verse. First Peter chapter two, verse twenty-one. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. Let's pray. Jesus, you are the author and the finisher of our faith. You are our example and the one who empowers us to obey, to live by faith. Hey Lord, you suffered. You were rejected by men. And in the moment God turned his face from you, yet you trusted and became the great high priest over the house of God. You became our savior and deliverer. You gave us an example that we can walk in your steps. So Lord Jesus, now by your spirit, according to the Father's will, strengthen us. Help us to grasp faith and trust. Lord, perseverance, Lord, through trial and deliverance from trial because you are very present help in times of trouble. Pray for all who suffer here today. Pray for healing. Pray for deliverance. I pray for grace. 
sustaining grace that they will see and meet you in this suffering and be strengthened. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.